Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So today we're going to talk about something that we all do every day of our lives, and that is language processing. And specifically, some of the ways that language processing is getting a lot more sophisticated. In some cases, stealing, borrowing, borrowing little tricks from computer vision. Ooh, sounds good. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, so before we start on the topic, I wanted to ask you, why is it natural language processing and not just language processing? Is it that they didn't want to overlap with LP, which is the type of record, and they wanted NLP? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think the idea being that natural language is like the language that people use to talk to each other contrast this as maybe like a programming language or mm, got it but i i don't exactly know like this uh, maybe less structured kind of thing uh well i mean natural language is pretty structured but it's a particular yeah it's, it's got it's got its own conventions which can be kind of tricky and subtle and so natural language processing along with computer vision are a couple of the problems where you know it's things that as you said in the intro humans do every day and take for granted in a sense but that are much harder for machine learning or AI algorithms to figure out. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, does NLP specifically, is it talking about, is it referring to the interpretation of the sounds into words or the interpretation of sound into words into meaning? I usually think of it as mostly words into meaning that, speech uh, recognition is its own task and it's oh, it's pretty it's closely related to natural language processing but usually what natural language processing is well this is its own episode in and of itself but natural <laughs> language processing is more often dealing with uh, stuff like trying to understand understand meaning in certain passages answer yeah. questions about what's going on communicate ideas you know elegantly with language that kind of thing. Wow. It's kind of hard to make lines in the sand with things that can be so closely connected. Like when I talk to my phone, I notice sometimes it, it mishears a single word, but then when it gets the entire phrase, it corrects one of the words because it makes more sense uh, with a different interpretation. So I guess it's kind of hard to separate out those two things entirely when sometimes those systems would be talking to each other. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, come to think of it, that's something that humans do too is we intuitively yeah. can make little corrections into what we hear based on the context but uh one thing that usually has traditionally had a pretty clear line between them is computer vision and or image recognition those types of tasks and natural language processing yeah they seem really different they do but the thing we're going to talk about today is some interesting techniques that have made computer vision advanced by leaps and bounds in the last couple of years and how they're being imported into natural language processing and having some success there as well. Oh, that's interesting. So some of the techniques that they're using for computer vision are actually applicable to the somewhat different problem, but I guess in some ways very similar problem of natural language processing. Huh. Sort of, yeah. So let me let me walk through what we do in computer vision these days, and then, you know, what's the analog in natural language processing? So in computer vision, usually what you're doing is you're training something like a convolutional neural network. It's 
these days usually pretty deep. So it'll have four or five or six layers as an example. And if you were to look at what's going on inside each of those layers, you'll see increasingly complex patterns starting to emerge in terms of what the algorithm is doing at each layer in a sense. And so what that looks like is usually in the first layer, there's the network learns edges and it learns the idea that there's light spots and dark spots. Second layer, it might have low order patterns like light dart light, like a checkerboard pattern, you know, something that's a little bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. Third layer, now you're starting to take some of those basic building blocks and you're using it to compose parts of images. So in the case of an algorithm that's trying to, I don't know, distinguish cats from cars, it'll have parts of a cat or parts of a car. And then as you get to the higher levels of the algorithm, it's starting to reconstruct entire pictures. So the way to think about this is that there's these lower level representations of kind of basic building blocks that you get Mm -hmm. in the early layers of the neural network. And then by the time you get to the top, it can be doing something that's pretty sophisticated, pretty subtle. And that's where, you know, a lot of the most interesting problems are to be solved. Okay, interesting. So uh, when we first talked about when I first learned about neural networks back in an episode, gosh, years and years ago, we were probably talking about uh, like two layers or something. But you're saying that the more layers you get, the more subtle of things your algorithm can learn based on the training data to identify. Yeah. And so if you're working in computer vision these days, chances are doing something like building a basic image recognition for a five layer deep neural net is not where you're focusing your time. You're working on either trying to train networks with less data. You're trying to do more subtle classification tasks. So this is thinking about things like looking at two x-rays of a pair of lungs. Can you tell which one has a certain disease in it or which one doesn't? And so part of the reason that computer vision has advanced past, you know, these basic image recognition tasks that people were working on a few years ago is because of the recognition that those lower levels of the neural net, the ones that are doing the basic stuff, you don't actually have to learn those from scratch each time you train a neural net. And in particular, there's a data set called ImageNet that's very famous. It's kind of your standard image recognition data set that shows up everywhere. It's got about a million images. It's got a whole bunch of pictures of different stuff. It's kind of the industry standard benchmark thing that you would use to train your neural net to test it. But one of the things researchers also do with it is they use it to initialize those lower layers of the neural net. And so those, yeah. And so those first layers where it's learning the edges and the light dark light and the simple patterns, you don't actually, let's say you're doing a, a very subtle image recognition task where you might not have a lot of data. Like let's take that lung x-ray example. You might only have a few hundred, or if you're really lucky, a few thousand images to train on. And in general, these deep neural nets, they take much bigger data sets to get good performance on. So what researchers will do in those cases is they'll use the first few layers from a neural net that's been trained on ImageNet, and then they'll just graft on top the last couple of layers where you're learning, you know, kind of those more sophisticated touches, like 
it's learning that it needs to be looking at x-rays and that there's subtleties in the different pathologies that could be showing up in the x-rays, you know, the part that the part that's hard. And it's not totally intuitive that this would work. The idea that you can partially train an algorithm on one data set, namely ImageNet, and then have it do better on classification tasks on another data set. But that's what they've found. And so it's kind of the state of the art these days in computer vision to be using a network that's been pre-trained on those first few layers. That's fascinating. That I mean, it's interesting because now that you say that, it feels like it makes some intuitive sense, particularly with deep neural nets, because you have so many layers and it is it is known that the first couple of layers are doing very basic things. But probably before you had told me that, I wouldn't have ever thought to try doing that. Sure, yeah. So that's the computer vision part. Now, we said that this was an episode about natural language processing. Right. So... So I'm do, guessing... Do is you there... want to venture a guess what, you know, what the analog could be in natural language processing? Uh, that, that was... Oh, I should have made an analog digital pun. That's what I should have done um, at the beginning. I am guessing that someone has put together a large database of audio files that you can use to kind of bootstrap the training of some sort of a deep, maybe convolutional neural network that does natural language processing. Uh, I, I, I guess it doesn't have to be audio clips if you're trying to extract meaning from already transcribed words. Uh, so I don't even know what that data set would look like. Like, what does, how do you train something to recognize meaning? Well, so... Yeah, you're you're on the right track. Uh, so you're right. You don't need to use audio data. Uh, you just need to use words. The written word works well. So any place you can find written text, you have a potential training corpus for a natural language a processing task. Yes, yeah. you can get tons of that data. It's a lot easier, actually, to find written material to train networks sometimes than comparable quality image data. But anyway... Uh, and one other thing, you're not going to train a convolutional network to do natural language processing because that's just not the kind of neural net, but that's nitpicking. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's actually not that hard to get started with representing text as the input features that you're going to put into a more sophisticated algorithm. Like in the case of natural language processing, you're probably using a recurrent neural net. And so the inputs to an algorithm like that, well, in order of increasing sophistication, you have a few choices. So you can represent the words in a certain document with a bag of words representation, which is just a big, you say each word is the place in a vector. And the length of the vector is the total vocabulary of your document and or, you know, of your corpus, usually where you have multiple documents. And then if a word shows up in a document, there's a count in that place in the vector. And then that's something that you pass into your um, into your neural net. And so what that means is that you have a mathematical representation of all the words that are showing up in your document, but there's no information that you're saving about the context of the words, whether they're showing up mm. next to each other or in different parts, yep. you know, how they get phrased or grouped together, which ones are particularly interesting words even. Okay, so proceeding in 
in uh, increasing sophistication, you might have something like right. TF-IDF, which is, uh, stands for Term Frequency Inverse Document Frequency. Uh, and so now we're starting to weight the different words relative to how much they show up in a given document and oh. the inverse of how so much the they first show one, up. The in first one you're just saying, does it show up? And then the second one you're saying, does it show up and is it a rare word? Yeah, yeah. like how often does it? Do, is it the word the that's going to show up a lot or is it the word sophistication, which might show up once or twice? depending right. on the document, I guess. Right. And so now you're starting to bake in, you know, a little bit more intelligence about, you know, of course, it still doesn't know, you know, quote unquote, the meanings of the words or their yeah. order, but it's starting to get a little more, anything. a little bit better. Yeah. And then again, proceeding in increasing sophistication, you can do something like a word embedding, a uh, word to vec is one of the more famous ones that we've covered in um, a previous episode. And in the word to vec algorithm, the way that you train the algorithm is you actually send in phrases. You'll send in multiple words that appear together at a time. And so each word, you then you know, train the algorithm to learn the words that show up in context with each other or within, you know, kind of this little sliding window that scans through your document. And the output of that is... Now it's a little bit harder to interpret because each word gets a representation in this, you know, very high dimensional embedding space and it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to interpret. But the thing that's interesting about that is that then you can start to do vector algebra on those vectors. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. And so then you can do their fun little examples of the embeddings that you get out of word to vec. So it'll say something like if you take the vector for king and you subtract the vector for man and you add the vector for woman, then you get the vector for queen. And like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So this is, that, that's crazy. I mean, math is a way of representing and manipulating meaning. So if you could just turn words that I have no idea how I would like write a program to deal with the meaning of words, if you just turn words into math, then you can do these operations that that we've been developing for thousands and thousands of years that's kind of cool that's a really interesting concept that we've talked about before but it still kind of blows my mind every time i think about it yeah um it's pretty cool and so if you're a neural net researcher who's thinking about this then you're like hmm well that's kind of interesting um you know maybe i can take these word to vec embeddings that are maybe i'm trying to do a you know a specialized natural language processing task i might not have a huge data set but i can take these word to vec embeddings from some work that somebody else has already done on a much bigger corpus and i just plug them in as the first layer into my recurrent neural net and now i'm using the same trick from computer vision mm, where i'm kind of yeah. pre-training the first layer or so of my network um, and so then it can that much more quickly and that much more effectively start to solve the those higher level, more sophisticated problems. Oh, interesting. So like, I don't really know how to how to phrase this question. Like, I mean, probably you don't know off the top of your head, but like, would an example of that being be, be something like the algorithm understanding how words might be ordered in a sentence and what the order what type of relationships the order of the words might convey about the relationship of the terms or something like that? So 
Not quite. So with word to vec you're still dealing with individual words. They have a little bit of contextual awareness. I guess you could say they have these relationships mm. with each other, but it falls very far short of the kinds of things that we usually ask natural language processing tasks to do, especially especially the stuff that we think of as interesting. So again, this is a topic for another day to go into the full detail here, but the more interesting state-of-the-art types of NLP tasks are things like are you know reading a passage that has some indirectly stated message and then answering a question about what that message might be. Like think about a, a reading oh. comprehension test that you might take yeah. for like the SAT. You know, answering SAT questions, really hard for NLP. Or doing things like generating natural language that sounds like something a human would say that doesn't get caught up in weird little ungrammatical eddies and um, you know actually gets you know the part of speech right so you have grammatically correct sentences that you're forming like that's kind of hard for for computers to do and so the point is that when you're pre-training with this these word to vec embeddings like it's a good start but it's kind of like just pre-training the very first layer of your convolutional neural nets like you're giving it you're giving it the edges, but you're not giving it the checkerboard patterns and the dark light dark and that a lot of the power of that pre-training trick that they do in computer vision is derived not just from pre-training the first layer, but maybe the second and the third. And so the question is, is there some analog for natural language processing that we can start to think of where these algorithms are being more and more pre-trained in an advanced way? Um, and so that's kind of the... That's the, I'm, I'm waving my hands here. That's the big reveal of the, of the episode, I guess, <laughs> is that you know, there's two or three pretty good algorithms on the market that I've read about. There may be more than that. Um, and there's a really good blog post that summarizes all of this in uh, a, a, a website called thegradient.pub. And um, this particular blog post was written by a person by the name of Sebastian Ruder, who's a a PhD student who it sounds like is studying this stuff and is the author of one of these algorithms. So of course we'll include a link to that. It's a really good article with a lot, a lot more richness and, and rigor than what we're able to get into here. But the point is that we're starting to, well, we, the natural language processing community <laughs> is starting to figure out how to pre-train, you know, not just the first layer, but, you know, the second and the third as well with wow. algorithms. Um, one of them's called Elmo. One of them's called ULM Fit. One of them's called OpenAI Transformer. They have slightly different theories behind them, but we're starting to get into pre-training, not just the word embeddings, but what they call language models. So that's the idea of the hierarchy of words relative to each other, the idea that words can have multiple different meanings, the semantic relationships between different words. These are the much more sophisticated, higher order concepts that are likely going to be the new state of the art going forward pretty soon. Okay, so I, I wanted to ask a little bit more about how these pre-training algorithms actually work. Like how how do you do you just go about training normally and then there's some way that you could just rip off, rip out the first two layers and then graft them onto another algorithm or or do you need to do anything 
more in a more specialized way or something like that. I don't know that rip out is exactly the verbiage I would use. So there's... Or copy. <laughs> uh, so there's three that came up in this blog post. Again, might be more, but I'll, I'll stick with these three for now. Um, so the first one is called Elmo. So let me say a few words about that. Uh, so this is an algorithm that the the thing that's kind of interesting here is in word to vec for example, you represent each word with a vector. And that vector sort of captures all the information that you have about that word. The thing that's hard about that is that different words can actually have different meanings. And so representing it with a single mm. vector kind of projects it down into this less informative space. That's interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought about that, but yeah, yeah, I guess. So you need to like infer, you need to understand the context if you're going to losslessly capture or less lossily capture the um, information about the word and what it means. Yeah. So a good example, we did king and, and queen earlier. Like queen is a good example. It's a word that depending on the context it kind of might have all different, all kinds of different connotations. You could mean queen in the sense that we talked about it, like the female ruler of a country, mm -hmm. but it could also refer to a chess piece. It could be referring to a drag queen. <laughs> These are all very different the ideas. The, the band, yes. And so, and if you don't have all of those different, uh, all of those different representations available to you, then you you know, taking a word to vec representation that has been trained to think that it's think of the queen as the queen of England. And then you give it a eighties rock band data set. It's going to be very confused, right? And very confused. <laughs> yeah. So what? this is, this is where my sense of humor came from as a, as a kid was just intentionally or unintentionally misinterpreting everything based on these multiple meanings of words. So in, in a sense, I mean, this actually may be a good way to create um, puns. Well, yeah, puns or just like my not very good sense of humor as a child. <laughs> uh, well, so the name of this algorithm, this feels kind of appropriate, is Elmo. Uh, ah, yeah. And uh, so the stands for uh, embeddings from language models. So we're starting to get into the idea of this is a language model, not just a word embedding. Um, and, you know, one of the innovations here is that it actually has uh, multiple vectors that each word can have for representing it. Um, I think technically an infinite number of vectors. And then there's some kind of complicated calculus that can, that you can do on those vectors. Um, I'm not exactly an expert here. But part of the strength of this is it can take a whole sentence into account instead of just, in the case oh, of wow. word to vec it'll just take into account kind of a sliding window that might be five words or something. So it's starting to represent not just the local structure around that word when it shows up, but it shows up, it gives it the entire, the entire sentence's worth of context. And so when using Elmo, what they'll do is they'll pre-train it on these much bigger, more general purpose uh, corpuses of, of text. And then they will apply them to other, use those as the initializations for these more challenging and, and 
topic-specific natural language processing tasks. And there's six different ones that were discussed in this paper. Uh, but each one of them, they they compared ELMO uh, against the standard benchmark state-of-the-art type thing, or an algorithm that was pre-trained with ELMO. ELMO is just that, that first layer. And found that, in general, it did better. Uh, in some cases, it did much better. And so that suggests that this pre-training, uh, transferring it from that that first data set to the more specialized tasks is paying off. And then the the other two algorithms, ULM fit and OpenAI Transformer, from what I can tell, they're kind of similar. And these focus a little bit more on what is the protocol of that transfer learning? What How does that algorithm actually work? So the whole idea is that you have this first neural net that you train on one data set, and then you have to graft it onto a second problem that like you were asking about a few minutes ago. And so these papers are actually talking about the algorithm that you would use to do that and how there's a couple different passes that you might take of first pre-training the algorithm, actually hooking up those lower level language models to the neural net that's going to actually solve your problem for you. And then going through some training that helps refine those last layers of the neural net so that they they actually are taking advantage of the things that they learned in the first round. So it's kind of like, it's an algorithm a little bit for, uh, you know, neural net finishing school where, you, you know, your your neural net kind of goes to, it goes to community college for the first two years where it gets to learn the basics for a lot cheaper. And then, I don't know, it transfers mm-hmm. to, to, Princeton for its last year so it can <laughs> take a couple seminar courses and get a fancy degree. I don't know. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's like kind of the idea. That's a pretty funny analogy. I like that. <laughs> um, so all of all of uh, the the research and links and stuff like this, much, much better and less fraught explanations in some cases uh, than I gave. I'll, yeah. um, again, highly, highly recommend... Uh, this blog post that explains it all on thegradient.pub, and uh, we'll have a link to that on lineardigressions.com. And again, just the takeaway here is that natural language processing, they're starting to uh, get pretty sophisticated in some of these pre-training methods, and in particular, thinking about ways that we can pre-train neural nets with whole language models instead of just simpler word embeddings. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.